The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with uh, grateful hearts. Thank, I am so thankful for a community of fellowship that comes together to study your word, to learn uh, about you and how you have revealed yourself uh, in, this, uh, in, in this your word. And so we ask God now as we turn to your letter to the church in Smyrna, may it also be, Lord, um, a, a letter of encouragement, a letter of instruction uh, to the church of our Savior. And that we might, in fact, be a beacon of Christian vitality here uh, for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I um, said a couple of weeks ago in the annual meeting, I reiterated last week in our class, that um, what, I, what I really want to, for us to accomplish or what uh, to be available, should the Lord choose to use us uh, in this way, is that we would be the center of Christian vitality uh, in Mandarin, and in the Diocese of Florida. So I got away this week, and I've been thinking about that because I feel like every time I say that, we have to, I, have to, I want to qualify it. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying we want to be the best. I'm not, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. You know, like, so uh, I, I like this. I, I um, thought of the word beacon. Uh, we want to be a beacon of Christian vitality in Mandarin and the Diocese of Florida. Again, I don't want to be better than anybody else. I just, I, I don't want to be the best. I mean, I do, but I'm not, not publicly. Um, but um, I want all churches to be, to be fantastic, and I want to be available to help others be fantastic. So that's what I mean. I'd love to know what you think about that, a beacon, or if there's another word, another way to say that, that we don't have to qualify. It sounds aspirational, but it doesn't sound arrogant. Um, the other thing we want to think about, and some of you, this is, I'm, I'm sort of using you like Facebook right now. How, um, how, would, how might we measure that? You can't really measure. Are we the center of Christian vitality? Are we, are we a beacon of Christian vitality? Um, what, are, what are ways that we can measure that? I'd love if you have some ideas about that. So we actually know if we're, we're doing that rather than just using fancy words. That'd be fantastic. Um, last week, we... We looked at the church in uh, Ephesus, and we're, we're going through these seven churches because if we are going to, in fact, be a beacon of Christian vitality, we want to look at Scripture and know what that looks like. We want to know what a, ch- a local church ought to be. And we have these letters from Jesus Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, so western Turkey. And, um, and we, are, we would love to see... Uh, both in his encouragements and in his admonition to these churches, uh, what what should we be? What does that look like? And so that's that's the reason why we're going through through these these letters. And last week we looked at Ephesus, and remember they uh, they had lost their first love. They they had a lot right. They were great at doctrine, but doctrine without love can be a hammer, can't it? It can be uh, very hard, very, um, very much a, a, a weapon. Really, you can weaponize your your good doctrine. Uh, we call it call it being dead right. You know, like it's just um, if if we if we are right but we have not love, then um, we are a clanging gong. And uh, as Paul says to the Corinthians, so. Um, in order to be a beacon of Christian vitality, it means we need to be a church of both truth and grace, right? And truth and love. Love for God, love for our neighbor. 
um, not just concerned being right. This this week we want to take a look at the second letter, the, um, the letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, not Smyrna, Georgia. Um, I, I assume one was named after the other, uh, or Smyrna, Tennessee, or Smyrna, Mississippi, um, uh, New Smyrna, Florida, which is clearly the best. It's new, right? So. Um, the uh, Smyrna is, is, this letter, this is the shortest, I, mean, I didn't count them all out, but eyeballing it, it's the shortest of the letters. Um, and it's a letter of encouragement, which is really, really nice. Uh, Smyrna is modern day Izmir in Turkey, and it is a bustling metropolis. 2.8 million people uh, there. It is, um, uh, and there are churches in Izmir. So, uh, so it, you know, he doesn't give the warning, if you don't repent, I will come and snuff out your lamp, right? Like he did to, to Ephesus. There's no warning like that. He's just, it's just encouragement. And, um, and you see the fruit of that today. You could go and worship in any number of churches in Izmir today. I, I looked it up on Google Maps, and they're, they're there. I just said churches in Izmir, and there's 15 or 20 of them. So... Um, it's in a protected harbor on the west coast of what we would call um, uh, Turkey today. It, it was a city, and probably maybe still is, a city known for its beauty. It's mild climate. You know, the, um, just, just the protected, it's got mountains around it, I understand, and, and, and this harbor, and it's just this sort of protected little alcove of, of beauty and wonder. It's just this gorgeous spot. Um, it's had, it was known in the day for beautiful temple, beautiful architecture, but especially its temples it's of, of pagan worship. Uh, it, it was even said that um, there's lots of Hermes and Zeus and lots of temples, but it was even said that um, in one article I looked at that, that perhaps emperor worship originated there or sort of came into flower there, that they, in an effort to be super loyal to the Romans, that, um, that they sort of began to embody the emperor as the, uh, the fullness of what the empire was to be and began to, to worship. Um, you'd, want, you'd want to double check that. But that's, that was um, sort of an offhanded comment in one of the articles I read. Uh, it may have been where Homer was born, uh, the great um, ancient writer. So it was a city even then of renown, maybe 200, 250,000 people in that time would have been a gigantic uh, city, far far larger than normal. Just a little north of Ephesus, uh, we never hear of Paul going to Smyrna uh, in Acts. He may have passed through there, but he didn't have a significant ministry there. But they had churches there, so it's so you would think probably that the church in Ephesus, somebody went there and planted it, like like in uh, Colossae. Um, so the word Smyrna uh, is, is in fact the Greek word for myrrh. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't know that. Um, the, uh, they had, there's lots of gum trees and gum tree g- groves there that produce this aromatic resin, um, which was, is known as myrrh. So this uh, said to be one of the, the gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus. No, no way to know if it came from Smyrna, uh, but they produced that a lot. Uh, myrrh was, of course, also used uh, in Jesus' burial. Nicodemus brought, uh, specifically, John tells us, um, myrrh to his gravesite. So again, it's, it's just, just north of Ephesus. Uh, it's, it's not mentioned as a place that Paul visited. Uh, this is a short little letter, and it's one of only two of the letters in, Ephesus, in uh, Revelation, Members 7, only two, where there is no rebuke. 
It's only comfort and encouragement. It's only comfort and encouragement. Um, it, it would be nice if Jesus wrote us a letter, if we were in that category, right? That would be, y'all are doing amazing. We'll see. All right, so let me read, uh, let me read this short letter, at verses 8 through 11 in Romans, I mean, Revelation chapter 2. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and, sorry, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Love Jesus. I mean, that would be kind of, well, thanks for the encouragement. Um, I mean, you'd much rather him, him, uh, him <laughs> saying, y'all are doing so great, and so I'm just going to take care of you, and nothing bad's going to happen, right? I mean, that's kind of the way we would so we dream about, we sort of fantasize that our Christianity is that we, we step into a relationship with Christ, and he takes care of the rest. And he does on an eternal scale, but um, it doesn't mean we don't have problems. And sometimes really serious problems. And in fact, he says, they're coming. Just be faithful. Get through it, even if it kills you. And you won't be hurt by the second death. Wow, what does all that mean? Well, the letter begins with the description that, uh, of Jesus that uh, John has pulled from chapter 1. Or maybe that Jesus has pulled from from chapter 1 as, as he is there. And, and all of the letters have some description. We read last week the portion of the, is describing John is seeing Jesus appear before him and he's amazed and there's all this kind of apocalyptic um, language to describe Jesus' white woolly hair, sword coming out of his mouth and all of this. And one of the things that Jesus says to John in that chapter is that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here... Um, he says, the, these are the words, the one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. Um, and, and it's, um, you know, it's remarkable, I think, that this, this phrase, or the first and the last, it means the same thing as the Alpha and the Omega. Remember, Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Like, we would have Z, uh, he's the A and the Z. He's, he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega who was and is and is to come. He is eternal, right? He is, uh, there is not a time where he isn't or wasn't or won't be. Um, ch- in the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 6, this is a, a passage that's often read in funerals. And this is where we have the, uh, the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the, the dwelling place of God and of man. And we hear the voice say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then the very last chapter of Revelation, again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning 
Again, it speaks, of course, I think we can intuit this, to the eternity of God. Uh, the, the, he was there at the beginning. He already was at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. Right In the beginning, God created. He, that was, he wasn't created in the beginning. He, he was there to create already. Uh, he caused the beginning. He is going to cause the end, and He will be there uh, at the end, and then He will be there beyond the end, and in whatever new beginning that entails. But it's all, all this language about the beginning and the end is uh, taken from Isaiah. Remember, we said that, that the book of Revelation is incredibly Old Testament. And the more and the better we know our Old Testament, the better we understand Revelation as we read through it. And in, in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, um, Isaiah, if you go and read through chapter 44 in Isaiah, he's on a rant of sorts about against idolatry. He's ranting against idolatry. Uh, and, and it's the idea, of course, that they have created gods, uh, little household gods made out of wood or silver or gold or something that's uh, up on the shelf in their home or their business uh, to watch over them. Uh, and, and he was um, he's saying, I'm the first and the last. I was there in the beginning. I, I will be there at the end. I mean, we see it in, in the... The very first chapter of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, um, and the Smyrnan Christians would understand uh, have understood faith in Jesus in the face of idolatry because they were known for their temples, right? They were known for worship of many, many gods, and uh, and so God is is saying though it's really actually. Um, Wonderful. It just shows how much he and how deeply, intimately he knows these Smyrnans. That uh, that I, if there is anything uh, in heaven, in the heavens, or on earth, I created it. If there were to be another God, it would be because I said there should be. Right? I am the first and the last. I will be there. Beginning. No God that you is any in any of the beautiful temples with this magnificent architecture was there in the beginning because there aren't any. Right, so um, so that's that's what uh, I think the significance of why that is pulled for this particular town is because they they understood. And in fact, they were being persecuted uh, for their faith in Christ, apart from uh, apart from the pagan worship which was so prevalent there in Smyrna. Uh, interestingly, uh, and it's not in my notes, but I, I just remember uh, that that the. Early Christians were called atheists because they didn't have the culture didn't have a category for what they were proclaiming. You know where um, where is your temple? Well, we don't have a temple. God dwells in us. Well, who are your priests? Well, we don't have a priest because Jesus is our is our priest, the the final priest. Um, you know, it's just they, they did not have a, well, how, how, how do you satisfy your God? Well, he's, we don't have to satisfy him. He's already satisfied. He, he is the sacrifice. He's the, he's the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the resurrection. Right? So they didn't, have, uh, they didn't have a category for what Christianity was proclaiming. 
Uh, it would have been incredibly strange. They would have been kicked out of, of their uh, vocational guilds, and uh, which is why probably the um, when Jesus says, "I know your poverty," that um, they they really literally uh, were having trouble making ends meet uh, because of their faith. Um, Jesus says, "I'm the Alpha and the Omega," saying, "I am the one true God." I always have been. I always will be. I am. I am. And we see this incredible uh, knowledge, uh, incredible compassion and intimate knowledge that Jesus has for the people there in Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, interestingly, I think it's in the Laodiceans where he says you, you boast about being rich, but you don't even see that you're incredibly impoverished, meaning you're, you're, um, you're financially well-to-do, but, but you are spiritually poor. But this is um, saying to the Smyrnans, I, I see that you, are, you don't have the material possessions that, you, that everybody else has, that maybe you once had. But in my mind... You're rich because of your steadfast faith. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander uh, that, that you've endured from those who say that they're Jews. In other words, those who, who ought to be on your side, those who, who uh, ought to be uh, worshiping God, recognizing Messiah, and yet they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty... Pretty pointed language, isn't it? Um, let me ask you how how are they? I, I, I maybe answered the question, but I want you to kind of I want you to think through that. I mean, we live in a fairly well-to-do area of of Jacksonville. We um, I don't know each of your individual situations, but what I, I mean, I have a hard time thinking Jesus would come to us and say, "I, I see your poverty." You know, like, I don't know that that's the standard. No, it's not that he wishes we, we were, but how could they be poor and yet be rich? And what do we have to learn about it? What, what can that, what does that say to us? Yeah. So, if you couldn't hear Ellen, she's saying that, that we have a uh, lots of examples of folks that, that we've seen. Maybe we know, particularly in third world countries, where we've gone on mission trips, that people who have nothing have seem to have everything. I mean, they they have all they need. They're joyful, happy. What else? Yes, Susie. Don't we just smack in opposition? We see, in, uh, the, our culture sees, not we see, our culture says that success is based on the acquisition of things, i.e. wealth, whereas this foretold of people that didn't have the riches but had the spiritual riches 
and and proclaim that to be much more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I think you've made a statement, right? I was waiting for your question. You, you, um, you're saying that they are, they have rightly prioritized wealth in their hearts. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. I and mean, I, think, I think what this calls us to is a, an evaluation of our relationship with the things that fill us. It's money, it's food, it's people's affirmation, anything that we can... I mean, this is kind of modern-day idolatry, right? This is, is, we don't have little you know, statues on our shelf, but we do make good things into God things, and if we didn't have that, we couldn't be happy. So how can we... Um, Evaluate our relationship with the things that fill us. You gotta have food. You gotta have money. You gotta have clothing, and no reason not to look good if you got clothing, right? So, I mean, and yet, is there um, is there some way? And, and if if God has given you a lot, and a lot of you, God has given you a lot. How do you use that to serve Him rather than to be full? So, just something to to ask. I don't have an I don't have the answer. Uh, for you, I think all of us have to do that. I, um, I have to do that a lot. You know, when, whenever um, I, I mean, m- m- financial giving for me is a joy, but it's not easy. Like I, I, I like to give to the church, to other things, but I'm, I'm not likely to give if I haven't planned, and I'm not great at planning out money. So, um, the church we're pretty squared away with, but it's really hard to, for us to part with those other things. I mean, we're in a season where we've got kids, but we need to teach them to give, right? So um, it's, it's, I think, constant evaluation, the way we, um, and it's not just money, not just money. I th- one of the things that's scary to me about this is if I, if I were, I wonder, I just wonder which camp I would be in. Would I be in the Smyrna church or would I be in the synagogue? Because what's scary to me is that these Jews, they're described as members of a synagogue of Satan. Surely they think they're serving God in their persecution. They think they're honoring Him by putting aside these supposed heretics um, who are challenging their orthodoxy. They're defending traditional orthodoxy. That sounds like pretty familiar to me, you know, like, um, and, and so what camp would, would I be in? How can we recognize, how do you, how do you recognize when it's time to, to change, when it's time to hold on to what we've always known? Is it, is it rooted in scripture or rooted in what a person is Is it man's tradition of the word? Well, I think I think you're onto something, and yet I would say that the word can be manipulated. So, for instance, the church has been guilty, I think, of serving Satan and dressing it up in Christian language from time to time over the years. It's easy, you know. People, go, oh, you have the Crusades. Well, that's easy, I think. Christians defended slavery in the name with the Bible in hand. Um, you know, how did how did Hitler rise to power on the backs of the Protestant churches uh, there and there with Bible in hand. Um, now, 
we would say, and certainly in retrospect, wrongly interpreted, but it's taken the gross horror of history to help us with that interpretation. I think, I think it's yes through the lens of Scripture and yes with incredible humility before the Lord. Yeah, what did you say? Was there something to... I just said, and yet we do it again and again. And yet we do it again and again. Um, you know, some certainly people would... It hasn't ended. It hasn't ended. What's that? Slavery hadn't ended. No. The, the defending of certain actions because the Bible says we have to defend it. Misinterpretation. Well, sure. That hasn't I mean, I, and I don't say this very often, but it's a, it's a very relevant and, and cogent example. I do not want to argue the doctrine of it, but I, I wouldn't bless a same-sex marriage. And it's because I, of what I read in Scripture. And some people would say, I'm doing exactly what I'm saying not to do. Some of you would say, amen, so glad. And some of you would say, wait, what? I'm ne- I'm never, it's never crossed my mind that you wouldn't do that. I, I see it in Scripture. I see that that, that is um, God loves people as as much or more than I mean, not as much or more far more than I could be possibly capable of doing. And this is what He said in Scripture, and so I'm not going to transgress that. Maybe when I get there, I'll be patted on the back. Maybe I'll be admonished. I don't know. I think we're trying to be faithful. Um. And so I think we have to do so with, we, we don't tout our position, I think. I think. We defend it, but I think we do so with great humility. Prayerfully, on our knees, we want to uh, move forward. So I, I don't know, I mean, I, you can respond to that or, or not. I really don't want to debate that issue. Um, but I do want to say that, um, that it's, I think it's, what's scary to me, and this is one of the things I... I really, um, when I'm looking at our church and the kind of church we are to be, I see as much warning in the synagogue of Satan um, as I do encouragement in the church in Smyrna to say, you've got to be sure of what you're defending, right? Um, so it seems that these Christians, they're commended by Jesus. They've lost their wealth. Maybe they've lost their jobs due to their Christian faith. Um, and... And the question is, could we be in physical and material poverty and yet rich in faith? Like, is our, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, we probably know lots of, of people who are rich in finances but with impoverished spirits, but the, and that's the opposite, right? So could we be physically, materially impoverished and yet rich in faith? I think for me, like, I would have to know once I got there. Yeah, <laughs> Ellen says you've been there and, and you can. So I mean, praise God. Thank you. Praise God. So and certainly, I mean, it's certainly possible. My question is, would we? And and I hope you know. And once I hope we don't ever. Have, none of you have ever has to find out. Maybe some of you are there now. I don't know. Second Corinthians eight nine. I wrote it there for you on your on your sheet. Uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, that's the gospel. That is, that is a, a financial uh, metaphor description of the gospel, that Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you and your poverty might become rich. Which is why God can look at this church, impoverished as they are, rich in faith, and say, you're rich. 
because you're rich in Christ, right? You have eternal glory waiting uh, for you. Um, You know, there's uh, many terrible persecutions for Christians around the world today. And I don't know exactly what these folks were enduring. It doesn't say. It does say that they're going to go to jail, some of them, and it's going to be 10 days, and some of them are not going to survive it. Uh, I don't know if you saw, so I got some Facebook traffic recently, that um, there's a, a, a pastor in Nigeria who was beheaded by Boko Haram, uh, Reverend Lawan Andimi, uh, who has received his, uh, his white robe um, as, a, as a Christian martyr. He was chairman of his local chapter, uh, the Christian Association of Nigeria recently beheaded him. Um, we've seen many folks uh, in the last few years, really, who are have been um, uh, martyred for their for their Christian faith. But it doesn't happen in Mandarin. I mean, you know, like he's not. Thanks be to God, you know. But um, we don't experience that. But we do. Um, what I what I want to want to bring to our attention is that we we typically don't share our faith very often because we don't want to offend. Which is sort of another way of saying we don't want to be persecuted. Now that may not be exactly right all the time. And I'm speaking to myself just as much as anyone. But I'm afraid of what they might think of me. And I'm, I'm guilty of that. Um, we're saying we don't want them to be mad at us. We don't want um, the relationship to be in jeopardy. We don't want them calling us names. Uh, we don't want persecution. I have... Uh, just because of the station that I'm in and the positions, uh, some of which I hold, uh, I'm, I'm within the denomination. We call it a fundamentalist um, or a traditionalist with, with uh, a sneer. Um, yeah, not meant as a compliment. Um, and, and that's typically, I don't regard myself as either one of those things. I, I, um, I typically understand that, like, you just, you're saying that because you don't have another category, right? I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know what you mean by fundamentalist. If you call me call me that, typically you mean you don't think like I do. Um, but what, but but the reality is that many people are open to faith talk on the on the times that I have, whether in a collar or not, spoken to my waitress or waiter at a restaurant and said, "Hey, I'm about to ask God to bless this food. Can I just? Is there a way that I can ask God to bless you too?" technique that I learned somewhere. Um, some of them are like, uh, I, I, uh, and leave, you know. <laughs> but most of them are like, thank you so much. Yeah, could you pray for my boyfriend? Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, and if you're, if you're praying, would you just, I guess just ask God to bless me. You know, so, um, Things like that, you know. I mean, I, I think there's there's ways that we can share our faith, and most people actually are open to the conversation. You should have the context of a relationship, I expect, but not always. Uh, you never, you, you don't want to come, you want to do your best not to come across as judgmental. You can't, you, you can't control what baggage they're bringing with them. Um, so. What Jesus says to these who are facing persecution is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Um, That's the most common command in all of Scripture. Do not fear. Fear not. Do not be afraid. 
like well over a hundred times. The most common command in all of Scripture: Do not fear. Um, so can we ask you? Yes. Ten days is that a figurative, like many of the numbers are, or, or was this like a revelation that he re, it's going to be ten days? Um, the question that Susie asks is: Is there a is this is the ten days um, figurative, symbolic, or actual? And I have no idea. I, I mean, it's kind of a round number, and round numbers typically mean about that long, or or you know have some sort of meaning. But I don't, I I, I can't tell you. I I don't. I think it's. Uh, I mean, so it's like a week and a half. So it's a short time, maybe a little longer than a short time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, do not be afraid. So this is a courage that's sourced in faith in Christ, sourced in His sovereignty, sourced in the conviction that our worth comes from His love and His action. Right? That's why, don't, it's, He's not saying don't be afraid because, you know, You've got bigger muscles than they do, or whatever. You know, he's saying uh, he's not appealing to you or the strength of your uh, fortitude or your your character, or your temperament. He's saying, "Don't be afraid, because I'm with you." I mean, like when uh, Moses was called at the burning bush, he said, "You're going to go to Pharaoh and bring all of his slave, his whole um, cadre of, of slaves, the whole nation of Israel, out of." Uh, out of Egypt, that would have been a fearsome calling. And Moses says, I, I, I mean, I can't do that. And God says, but I'll be with you. Jeremiah gets called and, and God says, uh, you're, um, you're going to be my prophet. And he says, I'm like 14. <laughs> and God doesn't say, oh yeah, you know, it's not going to be that bad. He says, I, I'll be with you. And that's why we are not to be afraid. Jesus in, in the boat uh, appears on the, on the lake walking across the water, and they scream. Of course they do. It's a ghost. Do not be afraid. Why? I am with you. It's God's presence with us that gives us the courage to face the things that we face. Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? Do we have the faith in the face of terrible, inevitable circumstances to not be afraid? What would that take? Usually what it takes is having terrible circumstances. That's when we find out. I've got a friend who uh, had, I've had, I've seen people just attack cancer with incredible faith and courage. And I've seen people whose faith is brittle. I've got a friend who's got um, colorectal cancer and he's really, he's a, he's a physician, which is, um, you know, almost worse because he, he knows too much. But, um, his faith is strong, but um, he has he has to replenish it often. You know what I mean? Like it's he, he's prone to despair. Um, and and thank God that that he replenishes it uh, often. And I don't think it's not the absence of fear; it's moving forward in faith, right? That's that's what um, that's what courage is. So. Um, Jesus said this, Matthew 18. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, meaning God. And yet he backs that up immediately with such tenderness. You're of of great value. He doesn't have any desire to put you away, to condemn you. Um, Fear not. You are of great value uh, to the Lord. That's our our source of courage. So, um, Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I mean, I just think of the 24 elders gathered around the throne. I preached about them. They're wearing the crown of life. They were martyred. And um, and they have been given this this crown. I mean, it's this glory that awaits us. Um, Paul says in Romans, uh, the um, this slight momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. So I think that um, and the the second that you will not, if the one who conquers, the one who gets through this, they will not be hurt by the second death. The first death is the physical death. The second death is the death of condemnation away from God, right? Casting into into hell or whatever. So um, the cut off from God in judgment. You won't be hurt by that. You you will not be given the second death. Um, what can we learn as a church? Aiming for Christian vitality from this church in Smyrna. What do you What do you think? From Jesus's letter. Hmm? Lots of furrowed brows. <laughs> Same thing. What's that? What you say? I said, "What can we learn as a church wanting to be a beacon of Christian vitality? What can we learn from Jesus's letter to the church in Smyrna?" Yes. Okay. Our faithfulness to Scripture, testimony. Yeah, Richard, you want to say something? Well, just understand the importance of Jesus in our lives. Knowing He's with us, He'll get us through the difficult times. Yes. And uh, life in the future is more important than life today. Yes. Since He was speaking to a church, that indicates it's a group of people worshiping together. And I think this whole fear issue goes back to having fellowship within a community because the fear, you can share your fear with like-minded people, with other Christians, and if you're going through a dark and fearful time in your life, because you have a commonality of faith in Christ, it helps you overcome that mm-hmm. fear. So. so the church, I love what you said, the church is a fellowship of those who are clinging to Christ no matter what. Yeah, that's, that was the church in Smyrna, for sure. And, and a church whose courage is, is based on the presence of Christ. You know, it's not Ephesus where we're going to stand up because we know the truth. You know, it's, it's this tender love for Christ which has made us available to whatever we're facing in the world today. Sir? Yes, ma'am. I think one thing we have to faith to question and to discuss so that there is always a base for us, which is our Bible, but we can discuss what effect it has on each of us 
And that's what we share with each other in our groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we share. Is our um, commitment to the Word. Yes, we stand on that. Thank you very much. All right. Well, God bless you. I hope this is helpful. I think it gives us a lot to think about. And um, hopefully next week, a little more upbeat. We'll see. Go to church.